Today we're reading from Acts 4, 32 through to 5, 16. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person amongst them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. This is God's word. Yep, that's God's cheerful word for us this morning. That's what we're looking at. Uh, Let's pray together as we come and consider this. Father, we ask again that you would help us to hear your words, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, so that through patience, through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and hold ever fast to the hope of everlasting life. We pray it for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm. Now, every so often, uh, you get some sort of national campaign uh, to try to get people back to church. Probably a decade or so ago, there was the gym campaign, Jesus in Me. It had some sort of TV adverts uh, and uh, encouraging people to go to church. Uh, was a bit odd to my mind. Then a few years ago, there was a, the Church of England uh, had a Come Back to Church Sunday. Um, 
limited appeal. Uh, then last year they had adverts in the cinemas and they got banned because you can't advertise church. Uh, but uh, none of these things uh, have ever been particularly successful. But how about this for a, a, a church campaign? Come to our church. We have signs and wonders, and anyone who lies drops dead in the middle of the service. Come to church. Uh, ooh, uh, I had been thinking about it, and now you said that, mm, no. Uh, thank you, but um, every day often I do exaggerate a little bit, so uh, I'm not going to run the risk. What do you do with this passage? We're returning then to the uh, early chapters of the book of Acts, which we started looking at in September. And uh, actually, chapter 5 and verse 11 is the first time you get the word church in the book of Acts. Actually, it doesn't appear much in the New Testament. Uh, uh, Jesus uses it much, uh, until this point rather. Jesus uses it a few times in Matthew's gospel, I'll build my church. Uh, but the other writers don't use it. And here's the first time you get the mention of the church in the book of Acts. And what are we told about the church? It's afraid. Verse 11, great fear sees the whole church. Oh, verse 12 of chapter 5, we've got signs and wonders. Yeah, yeah, verse 13, and we ain't joining you. We're striking at verse 13, no one else dared to join them. That's qualified by the next verse, but you would think twice before joining this church. There's clearly something extraordinary about this group of people, but it's not a membership you just sort of dibble in and out of. You don't just sign up for the gym for three months, or you could do that for the gym for three months and then drop away. This is a bit different, isn't it? There is clearly something extraordinary now, if you are joining us today for the, for the first time or just as a guest, back in September, we started looking at the book of Acts. We've had a little, uh, uh, the last month away, but um, the first few chapters. And uh, Luke has declared his purpose in writing this book. It is so that we would have confidence that uh, no matter where you're at in your views of Christianity, you can have confidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and his kingdom will grow. His kingdom is unstoppable. That's really the message of the book of Acts. Jesus' kingdom will grow, and it will grow despite opposition. There was plenty of that in chapter 4, more of that next time. But it will grow despite corruption. And really, that's the issue of our, our passage today. The church grows despite the corruption of Ananias and Sapphira. God steps in and says, the church is mine. I govern my church. And you, this is how the people are meant to behave. Not like that. It is an unusual story. Let's work through it. We're going to look through it in these, these three ways. Uh, there's a sort of introduction and then a contrast. Okay, so we're going to say that the church loved the truth and they were one together. That's the sort of introduction you get. And then you get the contrast. Barnabas, well, he loved believers and sacrificed money. But by contrast, Ananias and Sapphira, they loved money and sacrifice the truth. Okay, that's how we go at it. First, in this sort of little introduction to the section, uh, verses 32 to 35, we call it that. The church loved the truth, and they were one together. Before we read it, just, just turn back one page. It's very similar to what Lucas said before in chapter 2. We just look at chapter 2 and verse 44, 45. All the believers 
were together and held everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. We get a very similar observation made here in chapter 4. Luke is stressing that one of the obvious elements about this new church is not just what they believe is different, but how they're acting, their attitude in particular towards money, is radically different. Here are a group of people who, when God forms his church, they grow tightly together and they sit lightly to possessions. And those two seem to go hand in hand. They grow tightly together, but they sit lightly to money and possessions. I think verse 32 of chapter 4 is meant to be the headline over the section. That all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And then the rest down to 37, I think, is just an explanation of how it took place. It is a beautiful picture, isn't it, verse 32? All the believers were one in heart and mind. And there's extraordinary unity amongst them. How have they got there? Well, clearly they've been praying. Um, we, just before our section, verse 31, they prayed. God's spirit is at work amongst them. But we're told here how it happens after verse 32, uh, verse 33. It is with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. So great power in the, in the preaching of the apostles. Great grace comes. And so they're able to have this sort of radical generosity. So it seems this, this unity in one heart and mind comes because they're all sitting together under the teaching of the apostles. They believe the same truths. And therefore, they're able to very graciously give of their money to those who have need. Unity shares, it flows from the shared belief in what the apostles are teaching, particularly that Jesus is risen and will take his people to be with him. It's just a fairly obvious point, isn't it? You don't get unity unless there's a sort of commonality of belief or, or purpose. You might have a label, but it's meaningless without a sort of unity of belief. So I observe in our land at the moment, there is a conservative party. And there are a whole number of people who are bracketed under the label, the conservative party. And yet on the most significant issue of the day, probably that of Brexit, I observe that there's not a huge amount of unity. Of why. They're not, you couldn't really say that as a party of one heart and one mind together. They may have the same label over them, but clearly there's radical difference. And therefore, and lots of that seems to be going on in the political sphere. So I observe. But again, it would be true, in, I guess, of Christianity. There'll be plenty of people who have the label Christian. Or even evangelical Christian. But there is quite a lot of division, tragically, when people fail to sit under the teaching of the apostles. And if there's no unity of belief from the scriptures, then you get all sorts of things being lived out. Uh, tragically, last June, the general synod of the Church of England, some were booed for asserting that Jesus Christ is uniquely the way to know God, and some were booed there. I mean, what a ridiculous set of affairs. They call themselves Christian, and yet some would boo just because someone stands up and says, well, Jesus is the only way to know God. By contrast, what you have here, and what you see 
today. You can meet a Christian for the first time from halfway around the planet. And if you have a shared belief in the scriptures, that is the the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the apostles explain it, you have an extraordinary unity with them. Uh, I remember vividly a couple of years ago, a few years ago probably, uh, the uh, students joined uh, Christchurch Mayfair, uh, age 18, from Eastern Europe. And uh, about a month or so into her joining the church, uh, her parents were visiting, uh, and uh, her father was a, 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 a Romanian, was a Baptist pastor. He was quite a big bear of a man, and uh, understandably his English was not fluent, uh, certainly better than my Romanian. But anyway, he came in, and after the service, he came up to me, sort of a little, no, no great English concept of personal space, to be honest. He was quite close, um, and uh, considerably larger than me, uh, and said, you the pastor? Uh, yes. What do you believe about the Bible? Uh, well, I gave him a few words of explanation. Hmm. What do you think happened upon the cross? What did Jesus do? And I gave him my explanation. Hmm. What do you think happened at the resurrection? Physical, was it? What does it mean for you and me? And again, I gave him a few words of explanation. Hmm. Ah, you and I, we are brothers. <laughs> and then it gave me this enormous bear hug, which I sort of just about managed to survive. Um, and he was delighted. You know, he's, where is my daughter going to church? What do they believe? Ah, wonderful. And many here would have had the experience, I'm sure, of traveling to another part of the world and staying in someone's house that you have never met before. But they're a Christian, and they say, come and stay in my house. Come and have my stuff. It's a wonderful commonality. It's wonderful. You can have unity in one heart and one mind with someone you've never met before because you believe this truth in the teaching of the apostles. It's a unity that's God-given. You can't make that. So the church loved the truth, and they were one together. But then you get this contrast between Barnabas on the one hand and Ananias and Sapphira. So first, let's look at Barnabas. Barnabas loved believers, and therefore he sacrificed money. Let me pick it up again from verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and put the money, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is one of Luke's favorite little things. He sort of says, meet Barnabas, but doesn't really tell you a huge amount about them. Uh, And then we'll meet more of Barnabas later. He does the same with Philip. Meet Philip. Uh, And then moves on. Meet Stephen. Uh, And you get their story a bit later. He likes to sort of flag his characters up in advance. But Barnabas here is an example of generosity. Here is God's spirit at work. As they sit under the teaching of the apostles, they grow tightly together as a church. They sit lightly to their possessions. Now, let's be clear about the nature of the giving here. This is not talking about the regular giving to church gospel ministry that Mike told us about earlier. It's not that, okay? So don't think that we're tying those two together. It's just a coincidence. This happens to be about money, but it's not the same. Because this is voluntary and occasional. So it is, verse 34, from time to time. There's no compulsion 
here or obligation. Verse 34, from time to time, on occasion, those who owned land or houses sold them. Presumably this is landlords. It's not that the new converts thought, well, someone's in need. Let's all sell our houses and sleep under the stars. Uh, oh, now none of us have got houses. Now we're all in need. Oops. Uh, that's not a great strategy. Presumably he's talking about excess. Landlords sold a house, sold a field. We might say from time to time someone, well, cashed in a bit of their pension pot in order to give it to someone in need. Someone sold some shares they had to give them to someone in need. Is it not, you see, it's people, some in the church, these 5,000 who have become Christians so far, are clearly wealthier individuals and able to give extra for those who are in need. And that's why they do it. They, they, do, they do this, they sell their stuff, so that there is, verse 34, no needy person. Presumably the witness of the church, this new thing that's come into being, these new Christians, would be pretty undermined if there's vast disparities of wealth and some are just left to rot at the bottom. So no, they sell. They put their feet, excuse me, they put their um, money at the apostles' feet. Well, I guess there's practical wisdom in that. It means that the poorer individuals are not sort of directly tied to the wealthier ones. You, know, you don't get some wealthy individuals that everyone knows has got spare fields, and so everyone tries to tap them up. Uh, so there's wisdom in that, I guess. But I think probably a bit more in that. They, these wealthier individuals, they put it at the apostles' feet. It's not just an act of charity, like, you know, giving a 20 quid to someone begging on the street. It is saying again, all that I have is the Lord's, so I'm giving it to his representatives and they can sort it out. I think is what's going on. And so hopefully most who are part of the church family would know we run a deacon's fund here at church. From time to time, normally sort of Christmas, Easter time, individuals put money into it and then there are deacons in the church who administer that. You can apply uh, if needed, and they will not just give out sums of money, but they'll sit down with people and help them budget and help them plan to get back on their feet financially. And it seems a sensible way to do it. But I guess Luke's main point, what a beautiful picture. These early believers had a spontaneous concern. Oh, look, he, he appears to be in need. We, we, I can do something about that. And I think it's still true. You, you, you can't really stop genuine believers caring for one another. I mean, it's budget on Wednesday, isn't it? I think the Chancellor would love to know a little bit of the secret of this. How do I get people to sell their... How do I get people just to pay their taxes? Uh, you know, be it the, the top end with the Paradise Papers and the, and the millionaires or the one-third of people in the UK who've paid cash in hand to avoid paying tax. That's, you know, avoiding their taxes... I guess the Chancellor would love to know some way of getting this sort of generosity going, but you can't. It's not a technique. It's not a law. Here are Christians who are sitting under the teaching of the apostles. They're being taught more and more about the implications of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're saying, well, this, this changes everything. I remember a number of years ago, being um, when I was at another church, uh, going to a, a, a meeting of local um, Anglican ministers, chapter meeting, formerly it was called, and, uh, called, and the, the, the minister I was working with at the time, he was asked to give a presentation 
on uh, how he raises money because it was known it was a sort of wealthier church than some. How, how do you raise money? Uh, and to the disappointment of everyone in the room, he said, well, what we do is we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and we teach the Bible to people and they're very generous. And most of the others in the room were just not interested at all. But what do you do? What strategies do you have? What techniques do you use to raise money? Well, we, we sort of share the gospel with people and we teach them the Bible and we find that people become Christians and they're born again and, and they love to be generous when they're born again. And that was really not what they wanted to hear because it was not the ministry they were involved in, sadly. Now, this is normal, I think. Not many in this church own fields, to my knowledge. We're a different sort of culture uh, in the 21st century uh, in central London. To own a square foot is quite exciting in central London. But I'm amazed, humbled, when I hear small details, I'm sure I hear very little of it all, of people who very generously go without themselves, sell things for the sake of those who are in need. It's very wonderful. The Spirit of God is at work giving great power through his word so that people say, yes, this changes everything. Now I listen to this teaching of what Jesus Christ has done. It changes everything. I want to sit tightly. I want to grow tightly to the other believers and and sit lightly to my possessions. And that's Barnabas. He loved the believers and sacrificed money. But then you get Ananias and Sapphira, third and last. The contrast with them. At Ananias and Sapphira, they loved money. And therefore they sacrificed the truth. Let me read the first few verses here. Chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Let's just try and ask a few questions to to pick away what's going on here. First, what is their crime? What actually is it that they do wrong? Peter's clear in verse 4, they're not obliged to sell the land. And even when they've sold the land, they're not obliged to give away all the money. They don't have to do that. The issue is they've lied. Verse 3. Satan has filled their hearts, so they've lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. You've lied to human beings and, importantly, to God. So it must be, although we're not told the details, that they declared publicly, we've sold our field and we're giving all the money to the apostles and they can distribute it. And they haven't. They've lied. So presumably that, that is the heart of the issue here, their deceit. Presumably there's a whole number of little crimes uh, accumulate to this. There's coveting of money. You can imagine how this happens. Right, should we do this? To, yeah, we'll sell this field. Okay, we'll sell this field. They sell the field and then there's the sort of pile of, or the bag of gold or whatever it is in front of them. They go, oh, well, it's quite a lot of money. 
let's not give it all. No, 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 give it all. Uh, but we want to look good. I mean, everyone was pretty impressed with Barnabas, weren't they? I, I, want, I want that sort of acclaim. This is a coveting of money, a coveting of approval in the eyes of men. And when challenged, of course, directly, Sapphira, where she lies further. I thought one commentator made an interesting observation on this. The, the way that the Ananias and Sapphira, the husband and wife, conspire together, verse 2, this is with the wife's full knowledge. You see, it makes the point, there's very strong echoes of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve together in the first sin conspire and they eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in order to gain knowledge for themselves. Uh, and the language is a strong echo. Uh, so uh, he put it vividly. He said, here is the original sin of the church. Coveting of money, misuse of possessions. And I guess it is a reminder to you and me, we're, we're fools if we don't think that money and possessions have a pull on us. No matter how long we've been Christians, they always do. But what's their crime? I guess their crime then is deceit. It, they lie. That's the heart of their crime. A second little question, why, why this reaction from the Lord? Pretty strong and unusual, you'd have to say. So verse five, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down dead at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Why this strength of reaction? I mean, it's perhaps surprising to us. Ananias doesn't even get a chance to repent. Peter tells him, verse four, what happens, and he dies, verse five. Very striking. Well, I guess the indications here of why the suddenness of judgment, they've lied to God. Verse nine seems to be the acute element. You've conspired to test or tempt the spirit of the Lord. And God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. At the beginning of his church, the Lord makes it clear he rules the church. It's a supernatural community. He's in charge and you cannot behave how you like. I guess if deceit had operated in the church and nothing happened, then they stop being one heart and one mind. And this wonderful unity goes straight away. I guess presumably if Ananias and Sapphira had got away with this and then it kind of became known, they've got a lot of cash. Uh, that's interesting. Where's, did they give it all away? 
then all of a sudden the church is discredited. Ah, charlatans, just like everyone else, making a great show of giving away their money, but actually not really doing so. Hypocrites. And I guess the church at this crucial stage is discredited. But you see the response. Verse five, there's great fear amongst all who hear what happened. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The Lord wanted to say, the the embryonic church, at the beginning of this church, at the book of Acts, you, you are forgiven all you've done wrong in Jesus Christ. You can wonderfully come before me as children to a father, and holiness really matters. In my church, it really matters. Because God rules his church. So look, their their crime, what's their crime? I think it's deceit. Why this strength of reaction? God is saying, look, how you live matters. I rule my church. I guess a third little question might be, why does nothing like this happen anymore? Brackets, thank God. Uh, But um, I've never heard this happening. Uh, I mean, I've heard people talk about all sorts of extraordinary miracles that have taken place. No one has ever told me about a liar dropping dead in church upon, upon deceit. So why not? Well, if you've been here before, we've said uh, chapters 1 to 15 of the book of Acts are full of signs and wonders. That's the language which keeps getting used, signs and wonders. Because on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and says, here is what's happening that the prophecies of the Old Testament, Joel 2, when there will be signs and wonders amongst his people, when the Spirit of God comes at the beginning of the church, that's what's happening. This is the period of signs and wonders, Acts 1 to 15. And then in the rest of the book of Acts, you never get that language again. Because there's different emphasis in the second half. So this is a temporary period in the history of the church this period of signs and wonders. So chapter five, verse 12, again, you get the apostles performing many signs and wonders amongst the people. These are not the sort of things that happen today because let me just show you verse 16 at the end of that little section. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those tormented by impure spirits and all of them were healed. Now again, you had all sorts of claims. I'm sure some are true, and I'm sure some are bogus, of miracles taking place in the church today. But I've never known anyone, even the man who packs out the O2 in his bright white shining suit and bright white shining teeth and says, come for healings and miracles, even that sort of character. I've never known any of them saying, I heal everyone without fail. This is a unique period in history of signs and wonders. Now, don't mishear me. I I believe that God can and does perform all sorts of wonderful things today, miracles. But in the book of Acts, signs and wonders of this degree are here to authenticate the missionary preaching of the apostles as the word of God. This period of authenticating miracles, signs and wonders, was for them. And it authenticates the missionary preaching, and particularly that of the apostles. And now you and I have a full Bible 
And that's how we assess if someone's teaching or their ministry is true or bogus. This was necessary then. The judgment of Ananias and Sapphira is a sign and wonder. It had enormous impact upon the church. But that time of sign and wonders has passed. And in many ways, I guess you and I say, few. The time of dramatic, authenticating miracles was then. God can do what he wants, and I have no doubt he does miracles today, but not like this. Because that period was just for a while. Okay, as we finish, what do we do? What do, we, what do we do with this story then, if in part that time has gone? Let me say three things uh, uh, to take away as we finish. The first would be this. One, look, do take seriously God's rule of his church. We don't have a formal membership here. Broadly speaking, if you're a member of a small group, you're, you're viewed a member of the church. On any given Sunday here, there'll be plenty of visitors, plenty of those who are not yet Christians, not yet persuaded, and all are welcome. But when you commit to joining a church, it is not like joining the hockey club, or the PTA, or the gym. You are joining the people of Jesus Christ. You're joining God's church. It's a supernatural community, and it matters how we live. This church, in all their excitement, chapter 5, verse 11, they feared as well. There's a recognition, oh, we can be forgiven all sins before the Lord because of the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't mock God. We don't live how we want. If we're saying Jesus is our Lord and King, we do what he says as best we're able. We come to forgiveness when we get it wrong, but we're not mocking him. There's no deliberate deceit. Take seriously God's rule of his church. Uh, second thing, I guess we'd want to be a bit like this church in that our, our desire surely is to, to grow tightly, uh, those of us who are the church family, to grow tightly in our love for one another and to sit lightly to our possessions. It's a beautiful picture. I, I presume that many of us a bit like me, feel a little bit split when we read this church at the end of chapter four. You think, oh, it'd be wonderful to be part of this church as long as I don't have to sell my particular pension plan or cash in my shares. Uh, I mean, I love to be part of this community, but I'll just not personally have to pay for it. But of course, you, you don't get one without the other. A community which is united in one heart and mind in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Inevitably, you do grow together. It does bond. And you care less about possessions. So we must pray. We must pray that God brings great power through his word and his spirit so we have great grace to love. That's what we want, isn't it? We really, we want, chapter verse 33, we want great power and great grace. We don't want great fear. So let's pray that we're genuinely generous like this. So we could take seriously God's rule of his church. A desire has got to become like Barnabas, not Ananias and Sapphira. Thirdly, these two features, growing tightly together as a community, sitting lightly to possessions and money, they flow out of chapter 4, verse 33, a very clear view of salvation. They flow out of the apostles testifying to the resurrection 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a simple equation. If you spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ in his word and dwell upon him and the resurrection and eternity, that will bond you together with brothers and sisters and you'll sit lightly to possessions. If you fail to spend time with Jesus and thinking on eternity, you will want to hug your possessions very tightly. And that's how it works. If you don't spend time with the risen Jesus, if you don't dwell upon your home in heaven, then you'll fixate upon this world. Some will know very tragically on Thursday, a number here of us will be at the funeral of a 16 year old boy or very dear friends who tragically died completely unexpectedly last week. And it's horrible. And it's horrible to see the pain his family are in and their brokenness. And yet as I chat to others, not directly involved, sort of indirectly who know them, it is striking, even though they feel desperately sad for the family. It does have an impact, that sort of vivid, well, it's truth. You dwell upon that and all of a sudden you think, possessions are meaningless. They did the boy no good. Nothing. The church family, priceless, precious, really needed right now. The hope of resurrection in Jesus Christ, everything. It's a tragedy. But it's making some of us think more clearly. Possessions, what do they matter? The church family, thank God for them. The hope of eternity. One with my Lord, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is safe with Christ on high. With Christ my Saviour and my God. And that's what matters. Let's pray together. Great God and Father, we do want to thank you and praise you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that by faith in him, we cannot die forever. We will be taken to live with him forever. And knowing that truth, would we in this life grow wonderfully tight relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church which lead to a radical um, unity of heart and mind and a generosity would we sit lightly to our possessions because we know they are fleeting Father would you work this in us we pray for the honour of your name for this is your church for our great good we praise you Amen